you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet? Your fathers did not persecute. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You, who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices. They all rushed him. Dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees. Cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He had said this. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, born deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Welcome to Acts. Christ's ministry continues our verse-by-verse journey through the book of Acts. It's been called the fifth gospel. It is the fifth book of the New Testament, the first four being biographies of Jesus and the fifth book being the story of his followers. Christ came He was focused on being about his father's business. And when he left, he said, it is finished. His part of the business was completed. He redeemed us from our sins. And he conquered death for us by rising from the dead. And here we go. He began something new called the church and filled his followers with the Holy Spirit and commissioned them to carry the gospel to all the world. And so the church was in existence for about seven years now, and here in this passage, it begins to take place with the outbreak of persecution. The context of today's verse is uh, Stephen had been used mightily by the Lord. He was a man appointed by the church to help take care of widows, help with the Meals on Wheels program, as it were, and also began to preach and was a mighty witness. And so they arrested him, hauled him into court, and accused him of some things that were not true. And he just took it as an opportunity to preach and took the Supreme Court of the land, the Sanhedrin, on a tour through Israel's history. 
highlighting their rebellious forefathers, beginning with Joseph's brothers who rejected him, and because of their envy, they sold him into slavery, and ultimately that led to his being in prison, but ultimately God used it to lead him, to lead him into becoming a prime minister of Egypt. History they were proud of, but the brothers they weren't proud of, not looking at the fact that those brothers were their forefathers. Fast forward 400 years later, there's Moses, a man God saved to be their deliverer, and some of their forefathers rejected Moses right from the start. Forty years later, God sends Moses back to be their deliverer, and then those people were a pain in his backside for 40 years in the wilderness to the point that Moses himself didn't even make it into promised land. And so he's not mentioning all these things, but he's highlighting, while telling them their history, he's highlighting their forefathers' rebellion and sin. And here at the conclusion, he draws a parallel. You guys are just like your forefathers. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Woo, they like to look down their noses at their forefathers for their stuff. If it was me, I wouldn't do that. And here they are doing it. His sermon so infuriates them that they wound up proving him to be right. Let's continue. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, that is the Messiah, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Now, these people highly revered the law. They, they almost worshiped the Torah as God's gift, and it was God's gift to them, but they didn't obey it, and they prove it in what happens in the following verses. Boy, they didn't like this. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I'd like to pause right there and just contemplate for a minute, make some personal application before we too look down our noses at these people. How do we react when people tell us the truth? In Acts 2, Peter told them the truth, and 3,000 people repented and were baptized that day. Here, a mob kills an innocent man. When someone comes to you with the truth, the hard truth, maybe they don't deliver it in the perfect package. Maybe they don't make that sandwich, you know. You have to confront someone, compliment them, then confront them, and then compliment them. Sometimes when somebody compliments you, you get nervous because you know what's coming next, right? Some people just cut through the chase. They don't give you that luxury. How do you react when this happens? Do you gnash your teeth at them? Do you whine? Do you complain? Or do you look at the truth and say, you know what, you're right. I need to make an adjustment. Who remembers Mary Ann Brown? A well-known woman, prophetess, ministered here several times. Uh, she was in one church years ago and had to use the bathroom and left her mic on. That's happened to numerous preachers over the years. It's been embarrassing. In her case, it wasn't the obscene noises that people heard that was embarrassing. It was her prayer. She was in the bathroom praying, Oh, God. I need your help. This church is so dead. I don't know what to do. The story continues. The people didn't reject her. They knew she was right. And they had revival in that place. They heard something unpleasant to hear, but they responded appropriately. 
before we continue in the story, ask again, how do we respond when someone confronts us? Maybe their perception is not 100% accurate. It never is. But what are they saying that is true that you need to hear? Be wise. A hint to the wise should be sufficient, but sometimes we need a two-by-four, don't we? When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, this doesn't mean they, they ran up and bit him. Um, it's a, uh, gnashing your teeth is an expression of anger. It's, it's, it's growling. It's grinding their teeth. And maybe as Americans, we don't quite understand that. Uh, rather than gnashing our teeth, we just drop the F-bomb, you know. In our culture, I'm speaking to us as Americans. You don't, but Americans do. As a missionary kid in West Africa, um, they didn't do the F-bomb, but if they were really wanting to aggravate someone or irritate them or curse them, they would suck their teeth at them, bare their teeth, and man, those were fighting words. You might go to court for sucking your teeth at someone. So people didn't do it unless they were really angry. And as a child, you sure didn't walk off from your parents sucking your teeth if you were upset at the chore they assigned you. They might pepper you, and I mean use real peppers. That's a whole other story. So here they are gnashing him with their teeth. They are angry. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There he is, our intercessor. And said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, in court, often a judge would stand to issue his verdict. Guilty, not guilty, five years, death, whatever. Here Jesus is standing. Obviously, he's standing because this man is innocent. This makes them mad because he's testifying to the reality of Jesus. He's testifying to the deity of Christ there at the right hand of God. He's testifying to the resurrection of Christ. They couldn't take it anymore. Protocol goes out the window. They cry out with a loud voice and stop their ears. And throw him out of the city and stone him. Now, there was protocol for stoning. I mean, uh, for capital offenses, blasphemy, Uh, Stoning would be appropriate, but not without protocol, not without court, not without witnesses, not without cross-examination, not without lawyers working. They just skip all that and throw them out of the city. Now, according to Roman law, they couldn't, uh, capital punishment was not possible without a Roman overseer approving of such. That's why Jesus was hauled in front of Pilate to get this Roman approval. They wanted to do this thing right by the book. Here the book goes out the window and they just take him out and kill him. Now, in stoning someone, the person would be taken out of the city. That's the one thing they did do. And then he would be dropped from a height uh, equal to the height of two men. So on top of uh, a precipice or a cliff or a hill or a high place somewhere, they would throw them off and sometimes that would kill the person. And then the witnesses would be the ones to throw the rocks. Jesus, when he said, he that is without sin, cast the first stone. Well, the witnesses were the one that had the right to throw the rocks. And so it would make a false witness think twice about lying about someone because, you know, nobody wants to kill somebody unless they're really angry, as they were in this case. 
But standing on the steps of the court would be a representative of the Sanhedrin with a piece of fabric in his hand, a flag, as it were, a, a cloth, a sweater, a cape. Uh, they called it the sador. And he would wave it if the Sanhedrin wanted to call off the execution temporarily. At the gates of the city was a horseman watching the court steps, the man with the flag, the man with the fabric. And if he saw the Sanhedrin representative waving the fabric, he would take off on his horse as fast as he could to catch the mob, to halt the stoning, and they would drag the poor accused guy back to court for further questioning or for the testimony of another witness that just appeared. And this could happen five or six times before the stoning actually took place. So it was never a rushed mob deal, but in this case it was. They throw him out of the city and stone him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who happened to be a representative of the Sanhedrin, who could have maybe picked up a piece of fabric and at least waved it. He didn't. Now, the person being stoned ordinarily was stripped and killed without his clothes on. And here the people in their anger forget about that part of it, and they're the ones taking their clothes off showing that they're condemned, violating their own law that he had accused them of. They were the wicked ones doing the sin here. They laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul, and when they had stoned, they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God, saying, Lord, receive my spirit. Verse 60, then he knelt down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Reminds me of Jesus, doesn't it? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. The Bible says the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we're angry, we are prone to sin. That's why the Bible says be angry and don't sin. When we are angry, we are prone to sin. When you're angry, you're going to make a decision that you might regret. Well, I have righteous anger. Oh, you have righteous anger? Does, does God have righteous anger? Yes. The Bible says his anger is but for a moment. I know some people hold on to anger for a lifetime because they think it's righteous. That's not righteous. Thank God his anger is but for a moment. If it wasn't, we'd all be fried. Saul's not going to pick up any... He's not going to wave a sador. Verse 1 of chapter 8, he was consenting to his death. He was in agreement with this. It's about time. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made lamentation over him. This was a sad thing. As for Saul... He made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. In his testimony in Acts 22, verse 4, Saul says, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. 
So it was like wildfire. We've had enough of this church growth. We're going to wipe these people out. And all they did was wind up spreading the fire. Spreading the fire. You know, when you fight a fire, you've got to be careful you don't spread it, right? So the Meals on Wheels program that Stephen was a part of got trashed. Some of those widows went back to their homelands, taking the gospel with them. Therefore, verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I ask you in the name of Jesus to speak to our hearts in such a way that this word applies to us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. How to respond to persecution. Twelve ways, ten are in your bulletin. First of all, persecution should be anticipated. Jesus said in John 16, 33, in the world you'll have tribulation, you'll have trouble, you'll have persecution, you'll suffer. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. You might think, well, good for you, Jesus. I'm the one suffering here. Well, I think his statement was made to his followers. He assumed they were going to follow him. And in following me, be encouraged. You're going to face problems, but be encouraged. I'm the one leading you here. I've already overcome. This is why we sing songs about being triumphant. Because we're following the triumphant one. In Luke 17:1, he said, It is impossible for offenses not to come. It's impossible to live a life without problems, and it's impossible to not face opposition. If somebody offended you, welcome to the club. Welcome to the real world. Welcome to reality. It's going to happen. Jesus acknowledges it. But he also went on to say, but woe to him through whom they come. So we don't want to be offensive ourselves. A great response to persecution, number two, is praying to be bold. Not just, Lord, take this tribulation away, but Lord, help me to be bold. And the way to be bold is in God's response. They pray, Lord, grant grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word in Acts 4. He answers that prayer by filling them with the Holy Spirit. Receiving the Holy Spirit is God's remedy. Are you a scaredy cat? Are you afraid? Are you nervous? Are you anxious? The Bible says not to be, but it not only says not to be, he gives us the means not to be. And it's found in being filled often with the Holy Spirit. The fullness of the Spirit empowers us to be bold and obedient to the will of God, I believe. In Acts 13, uh, Paul, Saul, now called Paul, um, gets a taste of his own medicine. He gets ran out of town. The Bible says that they kick the dust off their feet against the city that had thrown them out and come to another city and that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, encouraged to face the next group that might reject them. You know, if you're a salesman facing rejection all the time, it might actually help your business to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Another good reaction to persecution is rejoicing for the opportunity to suffer. We get to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings when we suffer. 
In Acts 5, we learned a few weeks ago that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. They had been beaten. Number five, praying for our persecutors is Jesus' command. We are told, pray for those who persecute you. And here we see Stephen kneeling down. They hadn't knocked him down. He knelt down as an act of worship and said, Father, do not lay this sin to their charge. Who was part of that picture? Saul. Oh, he didn't throw any rocks? Yes, but he could have maybe delayed. He could have intervened. As a Sanhedrin, he could have stopped them and said, guys, let's go back and think this thing through some more. But he didn't, so he was part of the picture. So Stephen was praying for him. And guess what? God heard that prayer and saved a mighty witness who went on and wrote over half the New Testament. We're commanded to pray for our persecutors. Praying for the persecuted is important as well. In Acts chapter 12, Peter, Peter and James, the brother of John, are persecuted. James is beheaded. Peter's in prison. Herod wants to do the same thing to him. And the Bible says prayer was made constantly for Peter. God answered that prayer, sent an angel, and delivered him from prison. He showed up at the prayer meeting, and they didn't believe it was him. They thought, oh, he must have died. Why do we come up with explanations for our prayers not being answered when they're answered? Pray for healing. Oh, it must have been a 24-hour virus. I've seen so many 24-hour viruses healed. It's like, well, why even pray for them if you've got one, right? <laughs> Number seven, the seventh way to respond to persecution is to conquer complaining with singing and praying, songs and prayers. In Acts 16, after a severe beating in the town of Philippi, Paul and Silas are thrown in the dungeon in the inner cell and put in change and stocks. And instead of moaning and groaning, complaining about the bats, rats, and the smell, they begin to sing and praise the Lord. And God, Jack Hafer says, starts to pat his foot. Earthquake happens, and deliverance comes, and the jailer gets saved with his whole house that same night. The church is strengthened in that area. The city fathers come to them and beg them, not command them, but beg them, please leave. And I think if they had complained, moaned, and groaned, that may not have happened. Number eight, escaping from persecution. Escaping whenever possible is a good thing. It's not just grinning and bearing it, but looking for, looking for a way out. There's no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, but God is faithful who will with the temptation make a way of escape that you may be able to handle it. Sometimes that way is just the grace to endure, but sometimes it actually is a way out. Uh, in March, I heard the testimony of Brother Yoon. I had, I'd listened to his audio book of his testimony of deliverance from prison a couple times. And uh, one of the times I heard him share here in town, he, the way he had him come and speak, Brother Yoon shared that uh, his legs were broken because they didn't want him to escape, so they broke his legs because they'd heard this guy had escaped from jail before. And daily they would, they would kick on him and beat on him and make sure things weren't healing up. And one morning the Lord told him, get out of here. God, my legs are broken. And he just couldn't get away from the, 
the fact he needed to get out. So he drug himself to the cell door and says, I need to go to the bathroom. And ordinarily they would send somebody by to carry him to the bathroom. And they came and unlocked the door. But before someone came to take him to the bathroom, he hobbled out and all the way out to the exit of the prison, all the doors were open for some reason and guards weren't paying attention. He walks out on the street and there's a cab pulls up and opens the door for him. He hobbles into the cab and tells the cab to drive to a certain apartment. He hobbles up the steps, knocks on the door of the apartment. A little girl opens the door and says, oh, we've been praying for you, Brother Yoon. He says, I need some money to pay the cab outside. Little, little girl gives him some money. He starts making his way down the steps and he realizes his legs have been healed. Of course, now he's a wanted man. So he had to flee China and it's a whole other chapter of his life. He now travels around the world making the world aware of the persecuted church. So God makes a ways of escape sometimes. And if he does, take him, go for it. Number nine, appeal to authority for justice to be served. Most countries, religious persecution really is illegal, although uh, they don't always abide by it. So there is a place for lawyers in this thing. There is a place for writing letters and putting pressure diplomatically on countries that are persecuting believers. There really is a place for it. And so we need to not only pray for the persecuted, but to do what we can with our feet. Um, a few days ago, I was reading World Magazine and this article by Mindy Bells entitled, How Does a Church Move the World? Move My Heart. She wrote, Months into the evasion of Iraq by ISIS, I emailed a friend in Baghdad to check on his family and his church, known as St. George's Church. My friend was named Dalit Abuna. He's a deacon at St. George's. I asked him, how's your family? With so much turmoil, are worship services continuing? He answered, oh, yes. In fact, we've started two new groups here at the church, one to pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters and one to pray for our enemies a special group that prays for their enemies. The faithful at St. George's know and practice something deeply important, if rare, something history and Scripture tells us is what Christians are supposed to do. It's what makes us distinct. The historical Jesus never sanctioned violence or revenge and never endorsed anything like the Crusades. Jesus made love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you his command and reconciliation, the essence of his ministry. He said, quote, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8, unquote. Like all things that aren't easy or natural or safe, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us is a discipline. And at St. George's, it's the work of weekly prayer meetings and day-to-day -day service in a hostile community. St. George's has monthly outreaches where they distribute food to the poor, the majority of whom are Muslim women. They're serving them. Praying for our enemies has a dividend. It casts out fear. When you pray for someone, the Lord will develop a love in your heart for that someone, and your fear of them will dissipate. Over and over in the book of Acts, we see their early church praying boldly, suffering mightily, thanking its persecutors for scattering its people and doing it all over again. 
It may look as if the church is being pushed around, but in reality, this is how the church moves ahead. The fire spreads. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Number nine, appeal to authority for justice to be served. There's a place for that. Paul in Acts 22, after being tied and fixing to get a beating, he said, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman who's not yet been convicted? And in Acts 25, he appeals to Caesar, to a king named Felix. And Felix said, you've appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. As a Roman citizen, he had the right to appeal to a higher authority. And Felix said, okay, you're going to go to him. And so Paul buys more time and more places to preach the gospel. Isn't that awesome? By appealing to authority. Always appeal to authority when you can. Well, I shouldn't have to. Well, they had to. What makes us any better than them? Well, I have my rights. Well, the world doesn't give its people the same rights. And you start, if you're in another country, you start ranting and raving about it, me an American and your rights, guess what? <laughs> you really have made things hard on yourself. And even in our own country, we have a Bill of Rights, but that doesn't guarantee you're going to get them. This is what keeps lawyers busy. Number 10, know that our real battles are spiritual. Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. My final two points parallel each other. The first, the 11th point is commit your life to Christ completely every day. And number 12 is live your life for Christ completely every day. Take these hands, I know they're empty, but with you they can be used for beauty in your perfect plan. All I am is yours Take these feet I know they stumble but you use the weak You use the humble so please use me All I am is yours I give you
commit your life to Christ every day. Be willing to die for him. And live your life to Christ every day. Be willing to live for him. You may not have the honor of dying for him, but you can live for him. At John and Aunt Stacy's house, I had the honor of meeting a young man named Caleb Waller. Caleb comes from a family with 11 children. Um, he's a twin, and his parents named his twin brother Joshua. So the family has Joshua and Caleb. This family has a deep love for Israel, and they lead groups of people to Israel every year during harvest time, uh, harvesting grapes up in um, the area known as Sumerian Judea. And so um, on, on the Mountain of Blessing primarily is one of the areas where they go. Apparently two people can tend a vineyard that's huge, but when it's harvest time, they need some help at harvest time. And so uh, they take groups of Americans to go and harvest grapes. How'd like, who'd like to go to Israel and harvest grapes for a week? Yeah, so it's fun. And uh, impressive young man. Anyway, he told the story of meeting one of the uh, famous Israeli settlers, a man named Moshe, a man that's been left for dead more, more than once. The last time I think he was hatcheted in the back like a couple dozen times, 27 times, and left for dead and some other wounds, and he survived that. And He's an old man now with 11 kids and 120 grandkids. A true hero, and Caleb was honored to meet him. And he was so moved, he said, Moshe, I'm honored to meet you. I want you to know it would be my honor. I love Israel so much, it would be my honor to die for Israel. Moshe said, no, and grabbed him by the shoulders. Don't die for Israel, live for Israel. If we ask for a show of hands, who would be honored to be martyred for Jesus? Oh, yes, it's a romantic thing. I would love to go down in history. I, I, I really would because I don't want to live in a nursing home. I'm sorry, rehab center. But what about living for him every day? What about dying to self? What about dying to selfishness? What about dying to my dreams and desires and pursuing his dreams and desires? Don't just be willing to die for him. Live for him. Don't be willing to live for him. Live for him. More than willingness. Willingness can be a, 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 a imagined thing. What we're really willing to do is what we do. The proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the doing. The early church was in the doing. Those who were scattered went Everywhere. Can we say everywhere? everywhere? Preaching the word. In conclusion, we have a little scattering going on, and it's not persecution. It's a good thing. But it is bittersweet, kind of like dark chocolate. I love dark chocolate, but I hate dark chocolate. present with us for the last time as, as worshipers with us, as members of the church, is, um, let me get my composure here, but Dell and Chris Kennedy have answered the call to pastor a small congregation, it's small right now, I don't think it'll be small for long, in Kemp, Texas, in Kaufman County. 
Kaufman County has 114,600 and some odd citizens who believes they need some New Testament churches. Amen. Amen. So they've answered the call, pastor, a church known as Living Word Church. And I, I would like to end the service with a time of pray, praying for them. Can we do that? If you know them or you're a member of the prayer team or you're moved by the Holy Spirit, come on up and let's gather around them and pray over them and send them to pastor in Kaufman County, Texas. Lord, we just thank you for Dell and Chris. We thank you, Lord, for opening doors of ministry. We thank you, Lord, for this scattering. We just pray that you would open doors for them, make their journeys back and forth in the next season a joy, the travel's a joy. And Lord, we just pray for divine connections on the way and while they're there. Lord, we know that they've served in that part of the of the state of Texas before years ago. We pray, Lord, for old connections that need to be remade to be made. In Jesus' name, bless this man and this woman. Meet all their needs, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you. As we send them forth to Kemp, uh, Texas, Father God, that uh, we're sending them out not as a not as a boomerang, but as an arrow. Hallelujah. <laughs> as an arrow to penetrate Coffin County for your kingdom, Father God, and for your glory, Lord. Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus as we send them forth. Watch over them, Father God, that you would bless them, that you would equip them, Father God, with patience and mercy and grace and endurance and perseverance, all that they need, Lord God, as they minister to Living Word Church, Father God. I thank you, Lord God, that you're preparing the people that they're coming in contact with, Father God, and that, Lord, that their ministry will be not only mighty, but multiplied, hallelujah, hallelujah, multiplied. In the name of Jesus, thank you for this couple, Father God. Watch over them, protect them, Father God. Provide for them in every way. In Jesus' name. I had that same word. Um, I actually saw an arrow, and so he said it. Um, and then the scripture that comes to mind, we usually speak of a children. Train up a child in the way they should go. Actually, we know you're still a child, but... Train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, we know you're old too. You will not depart from it. You have not departed from the bent and the bow that was released as a young man and as a young woman. And so once again, we shoot you out as an arrow in the bent of the bow where you are meant to go. And we declare that you will pierce the hearts of men, pierce the hearts of that community, and release the light of God and the joy of the Lord in the presence of that region. In Jesus' name. Amen. I pray that the Lord would protect you from every attack of the enemy because both of you have lived through numerous attacks already and that's all they've been is attacks and they're not meant for anything but to distract you from what the Lord has for your assignment at this time in this place 
And so we pray health over both of you. We pray that from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, that the Holy Spirit would sanctify every cell in your body, that there would be nothing that would touch you, that you would walk in the fullness of that health, and you would minister the fullness of that health to other people. And by such, many will be saved. The miracles and wonders and workings of our Father. I ask God to give me a word for you. And it's not very eloquent. It's not long. But it's simply, without faith, it is impossible to please God. I am pleased. This is Noah, their son. Thank you, Jesus. Bless the Lord.